I'm Betty Salonik, CEO and founder of Accelerate Investors. Welcome to our podcast, Chief Investment Officer Conversations, which brings to you what is on top of mind for the world's leading CIOs. In our conversations, we will explore their background, their current investment strategies, and their global outlook. Welcome to part two of my interview with Kim Liu, CEO of the $14 billion plus Columbia University Endowment. In this episode, Kim shares her insights on investing in private assets, including private credit. She discusses challenges facing our world and investment opportunities that Columbia is interested in exploring. Kim also shares with us her thoughts on increasing diversity in the investment industry and her own inspiring story of breaking barriers as a woman of color. I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation and I'm sure you'll enjoy it as well. Before we start, I invite you to join us at the Accelerate Investors Southwest Investor Insights Summit on January 19th in Austin, Texas. At the summit, you will have the opportunity to meet chief investment officers and other investors from endowments, foundations, and pensions from the Southwest region. For more information, please visit accelerateinvestorsny.com forward slash SW23. Again, the website is accelerateinvestorsny.com forward slash SW23. The link is also in the episode description. Now on to my conversation with Kim. I hope you enjoy. And you mentioned this already about increasing the endowments, investments in private assets. Can you talk a little bit more about this? And You said maybe next year deploy more capital, but what's looking attractive, not attractive? Yeah. So I think a lot of people right now are sort of nervous about privates, you know, because of course you are, right? Like there was a lot of all the assumptions that were made around how to invest in privates are now under Mm -hmm. threat, right? Like because your private's portfolio relied on debt, cheap money, not probably not going to be available. Lots of um, private managers selling to other private managers, probably not going to be as readily available, much greater threats from strategics now actually being in and becoming viable um, acquirers in this market. So I think it's noisy for a while, but it will settle in. It always does. You eventually figure out, okay, so what actually, how much debt can we get? What does the structure of the desk look like? How much does it cost? Who are our competitors? And smart private managers will figure that out. It will take a while. We'll need to watch and see how the market settles. But if you have talented managers who really study markets and understand them and have good relationships, they will figure it out. And so some of the best deals will be invested in in the next couple of years when when things are unsettled and you'll be able to get things at cheaper prices when people haven't quite yet figured out how to value things. Similarly, I always think there's there's great venture companies made in every environment. The question is just who is the type of manager that's likely to be successful? I think there was a period of time when it was established managers. And if you were an established manager, you probably couldn't be successful because it was all about networks, mm-hmm. all about relationships, um, all about sourcing. I think increasingly sourcing is is different because you can you can use all kinds of data mm-hmm. and all kinds of artificial intelligence and analytics to get access to information about what the market looks like and what ideas are bubbling up in different places. It's about what, how you support managers. It's about um, 
how much knowledge you have that will help somebody grow. It, it's always going to be about whether or not you can get them into companies that might want to buy their products. But there's always somebody who's doing that. I mean, this is a, a country that's sort of built on innovation. And I don't think that we lose that because it's so built into the culture of the United States. And so I think venture is always going to be an important part, but it always gets ahead of itself. And right now it's ahead of itself. And so planting seeds with managers, and sometimes I think it's new managers who do not have the legacy of the portfolios that they have to support and figure out how to deal with. Sometimes I think, no, it's those managers who've learned how to navigate in, in complexity and have the skills. It's probably both, and it's probably a little of each. And we're going to try and figure out, um, based on you know the normal due diligence process, who we think is having an advantage and can do that. And so we're going to we're going to be investing in venture. We are investing in venture. We are going to be investing in privates. We're looking at credit now. I don't typically think credit is a great asset class for long-term endowments because you have capped upside and we have an infinite time horizon. And so we don't necessarily want capped upside, but there are always times when you get equity-like returns in, in the credit markets. And I think we may be approaching one of those times. And so we're doing a lot of work on credit, trying to figure out if that's a strategy that we want to invest some capital in. It gives you some cash flow in a time when cash flows are probably going to be challenged. And so we'll start to think about whether that's an opportunity. Um, and, you know, similarly, we'll think about, you know, I think a lot of portfolios as we stretch for yield got very growthy and we abandoned the value space. I think um, we're going to go back and rethink what, what a well-constructed balanced portfolio looks like. So we're, we're going to be looking at a lot of things. I think um, it, it's, it's always, you know it when you see it. Tend to invest in credit, but never say never. This could be the time to do credit. Um, so I don't ever completely want to take anything off the table. I just want to be very disciplined about, one, we're always working to protect the, the reputation and image of Columbia University. Two, we have a minimum risk return profile that we're looking for. It depends on how liquid or illiquid an asset class is. So trying to be very clear about our expectations of an investment, but not totally take things off the table if they meet those objectives. And, you know, we started out talking about how organizational structure help you support those decision making. So trying to create uh, this organization that allows us to look at creative things. So I don't know, there's tons that we absolutely won't do, mm -hmm. but there's tons that don't meet the bar. So Got it. I, I, we will see because there I, things like infrastructure have traditionally not been on the table for foundations because they didn't meet the return hurdle. But so much pressure around increasing infrastructure for things like um, EV charging or, you know, as we try to um, to to support transportation and or development in different economies that need this development, maybe they'll create public-private partnerships that will have a return hurdle that's appropriate. Not sure. Um, we'll look at them and we'll see. Yeah. I was actually listening to a podcast this morning. Uh, I love podcasts. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> GM made the commitment to no more carbon emissions. Right, 2035, I think. Exactly. It's crazy. So, and then the podcast was talking about how there would be a need for more EV charging stations. And where is that money gonna, going to come from? Is it private, government? 
it's really crazy because, you know, like you think about when you're traveling someplace and you have to stop for gas and it ultimately takes, you know, five or 10 minutes to get your gas and there's a line. Yeah. Well, it takes at least 15, probably 45 minutes to charge your car. The lines will be crazy if they don't. I mean, they have to have probably four times as many charging stations as they had gas stations. So there's, I think there's, it's going to be an interesting thing to watch yeah. how that happens and, and what happens so that people can trust it and feel confident that they're going to be able to, to get where they're going. Yeah, it does sound like an opportunity. And then California passed the law as well yeah. by 2035, no more. Just imagine like 115 degrees in California and they're not allowing people to charge their cars and they're not, they're having rolling brownouts. That's a problem, right? <laughs> like, and if you, if you, if you're having, you're in the midst of a wildfire and you need to get out, but you can't charge your car. Oh I mean, gosh. there's just tons of challenges that we're going to have to find a solution to. There's got to be opportunities there. Exactly. So. When there's a challenge, there's an opportunity. Absolutely. What geopolitical risk concerns you the most and how is the endowment hedging? So, you know, I, I think we are, as everybody else is concerned about the relationship between the U.S. and China. Mm -hmm. I think it's hard not to. I think we all made a commitment to China, I think initially because its GDP was growing faster than anybody else's and everybody wanted to take advantage of that growth, especially the a rising middle class of that many people. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, we are now at a place where it is very clear that the way China and the U.S. will operate and see the world will be different. And so we have to figure out whether or not we can properly assess the risks there and how much conflict can come from between the United States and China, which is risk we don't get paid for if it turns into something big. I think that's the biggest one, especially because I think China is such an important market, mm -hmm. right? It's such an important market. So it's a growing part of the GDP. It, it's going to have a growing impact on the world. Um, so to take it off the table as an investment opportunity feels big, mm. right? Like, I think that that will have, it will be an economy that will inf affect every other economy, yeah. but you can't invest in it. Mm -hmm. And I'm just as nervous about laws and changes that happen in China. Obviously they can very unilaterally make changes yeah. and it's hard to invest in a place that you can't rely on the laws and, and and how and don't have a clear sense of how the government will react but i think it's just as concerning laws that we will do here in the united states right that will put investments at risk so mm -hmm. i think there's a lot of risk around china but also there continues to be opportunity right and it yeah. really in a world where everything seems increasingly correlated yeah it's one of the few places that really could be a diversification because mm -hmm. its economy is not dependent on the united states there's very few other countries whose economies aren't dependent on the United States. So there are moments, or there should be moments, when the U.S. dislocates, where China does not. Hmm. And so it's a, it, there's a lot of reasons why someone building a long-term portfolio should have exposure to China, but so much noise around it right now. So it's a big concern of mine, because it is an area that I want us to have exposure to, but not sure we can have exposure to. So we haven't we haven't divested, but we are um, for sure being much more critical and much more um, 
patient about how we think about investments there. So I think that's big. I think anytime um, people are desperate, desperate people make desperate decisions. I think we are increasingly entering a place where there's real food insecurity. Mm -hmm. And when people are hungry, they do things. Um, I think there's lots of threat um, for famine because of climate in different areas. They spill into other countries and people get very protective. Um, So I think I think there's lots of reasons to be concerned about geopolitics right now. Yeah. And I, I, it's hard to point to just one. I mean, I, I had to call out China just because it's so big a part of everybody's yeah. portfolio and it's just such a major part of the, um, the world. But I think there are lots of things like that too, right? Yeah. And, um, that I think are challenging and I, I'm concerned. And, you know, we have full employment here, but there's lots of places where there are lots of young men without jobs mm. in countries with young men without jobs yeah create unrest exactly and i think it's going to be important to watch those things closely and see what the spillover effects will be for them yeah i was amazed to learn about ukraine how big of a grain exporter they are and did you know the yellow and the flag is signifies the grain i i think i read probably you listen to too, like 90% of the the um, food that goes into Africa comes from from Ukraine oh, wow. and, um, and Russia. Oh, and, you know, it, and this war just doesn't impact this year. It didn't plant, so it impacts next year. Yeah. So this wow. is a, a overarching problem. It's it's super concerning. It's, it's it's concerning not just for our portfolios, just for a citizen of this world right. to see what could potentially happen and how many people could really be in dire conditions. So we will see. We will see. Now moving on to emerging managers. How does Columbia think of investing in emerging managers and how do you go about identifying promising emerging managers and do you invest in first-time funds? So, you know, I think that's the thing that has been saddest for me coming to here. Mm-hmm. here. There, there's so many things about being in Columbia that I love, but one of the things that's saddest for me, it's much harder to invest in first-time funds mm-hmm. here. Um, I think that we, when we think about how to construct a portfolio, at least when I think about how to construct a portfolio, I'm ever conscious of the fact that the only resource I can't make more of is time. Mm -hmm. And so I have to be efficient about how I use time in the time of this team and also be efficient about how we um, use capital because every dollar that we spend on managing money is a dollar that does not go to the university. And so I have to be conscious of being efficient, efficient with capital, efficient with time. And so it's really hard to have a lot of really small investments. Um, So I have to think, I always think to myself, how big does an investment have to be for it to be meaningful to Columbia's Mm -hmm. portfolio? So at $14 billion, I always think you have to be at least able to get to a 1% position at some point to have an impact on Mm -hmm. the performance Mm -hmm. of the portfolio. So some people will be like, well, you do a lot of tiny ones and they add up to 1%. But then that's a lot of time that yeah. you use and a lot of, um, because I don't care how small it is, it's still the same management. You yeah. still have to meet with the manager. You still have to um, cultivate a relationship. You want it to grow into something. You have to invest in them developing into something. 
And I also worry that when you do that, you, you, you end up with a two-tiered portfolio. You end up with the A-team portfolio and then the B-team portfolio. And mm. then people struggle with graduating into the A-team portfolio. And I really don't want to create that. So I'm always looking to enter a manager when I see there's a pathway to it becoming mm. a 1% position. Doesn't My first investment doesn't have to be a 1% position. But you know I always use the, the model of like, oh, my first investment in a fund could be a $15 million investment. And my next investment could be 25. And my next investment could be 35. Yeah. You add that all together. And if it's a high generating return, a three times return, the impact will be a 1% right. position. So it's not like I need them to be massive, but I need them not to be tiny. And a lot of the emerging managers, when they first come out, sub $100 million funds, they're just too small. And we don't want um, to be huge parts of any one portfolio. So we want them to be big enough that our check is not make or break for them. Might not always be the case. I think there's some that we maybe will be the anchor for, but that's going to be few and far between. So, and and I think picking emerging managers and really feeling comfortable picking emerging managers is a skill. And Columbia had traditionally been a place that really relied heavily on track record. And so mm-hmm. investing early was not a muscle that is well-developed here. So before we start to do that, we need to work on building that muscle and building that expertise within the team, spending a lot of time on that. So I hope at some point we can do that. I don't think we are there yet. But we'll get there. Now I want to move on to how you invest, investing that is aligned with the values of Columbia. In an article for the Knight Foundation, you wrote that prioritizing diversity is a performance imperative. You said that it's not about a firm making token hires to represent diversity. It is about a firm believing diversity matters in achieving better outcomes and actively building an organization to reflect that belief. I'm curious, how do you measure this? How do you due diligence a potential new manager to see if they value diversity? So one of the last things I did at Carnegie was to, to do start sur- surveying um, our managers around diversity. One of the first things I did at Columbia mm. was to do a diversity survey. And really appreciating that this is this first survey is just about where we are. There's no judgment about where mm. anybody is at the time. Quite honestly, Columbia is not where I would like yeah. it to be, right? Like, there's no one that is necessarily exactly where we want it to be. Mm-hmm. I don't think the issue is completely a pipeline issue, but it is partially a pipeline mm-hmm. issue. And so, because people are putting demands on people increasing diversity, what they're doing is um, stealing people from each other, right? Like, oh, yeah. trying to get, you know, the one managing director yeah. or senior person of color at a place to come to their firm because they're not enough managing directors yet. So we've got to push and at some point there'll be more and every year there's more. But right now it really is like every time one wins, somebody's losing somewhere Mm. because everybody's hunting for the same thing. Um, So I want to see that a manager understands that they need to um, maybe hire at junior levels and really think about how they're going to cultivate and keep that talent within their firm, how they're going to create an environment where that diverse person isn't just diverse for diverse sake, but actually contributes their diversity into the conversation Mm -hmm. and it's valued. I think that's along a lot of dimensions. 
So, but we have to model that here at Columbia. And I also have to be able to explain to them why I think it's important. I have to be able to explain, look, I understand because I do understand mm -hmm. managing diverse teams are hard, mm -hmm. really hard. It is much easier to manage non-diverse teams. So I'm asking the managers to build a muscle that they have not yet necessarily worked on. And so that's why I can't expect them to be experts at it just out the gate. But I do want them to do the work, right? I do want them to be out there trying to figure out how to solve this problem and understanding that it's a problem that needs to be solved. If the United States, and I said this at a meeting I went to, if the United States um, is such that 40%, I don't even think it's 40%, let's just say 25% of the population is white males, maybe it's 30%, I don't know, whatever. If it's 30 or 40% is white males, but, but your organization is made up of 100% white males, some of your players are average. In fact, some of them are bottom quartile because even if you're great, there are other great firms out there who also think that they have mm -hmm. all the best. Mm -hmm. Some of you don't have all the best, mm -hmm. right? So you have sacrificed quality of person in order to make management easier. Yeah. So at some point as the world gets more and more competitive, you just have to look for the best person. And sometimes that best person is the person who doesn't yet know how to do it, but that you cultivate into being really good at this job. And so I think there's tons of different levers that people are going to have to use, but they do have to understand that the population is going to be what it's going to be, and they have to find the best across the population, and that there are some people who are doing this job who are doing it for probably wrong reasons, right? My father did this job, you know, and so it's a family business. Mm -hmm when really you should be a photographer, right? Like this is not your life's passion. It's not yeah. the thing you're going to be the best at. So I think there's a little bit of understanding that reality. And it's also because many of these markets are underserved, having people who understand these markets and know that there are opportunities there will add value. Like we're all looking for inefficiencies. We're all looking for places that, that can create returns that we didn't know about before. They're in these populations that are growing. Yeah. And so I think there's a million reasons why this is not about tokenism, but this is really about creating more robust and resilient portfolios. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I'm just trying to, to communicate that to managers and understanding that it that it's going to take time and give them grace, just like I hope people give me grace as I try to build out this portfolio. And it might be too early, but what would you do if you don't see progress if you don't see managers changing and actively building organizations that are diverse and inclusive. So it is too early now. Um, you know, I've sort of made a commitment to doing the survey every three to four years because mm -hmm. I don't want anybody to feel like they have to keep a bad person if they're not good, right? Like, so mm -hmm. you, but sometimes that happens if you survey every year. So I want to, I want to look over time periods and so I've not been here long enough to look over time periods. But I have to say, I haven't had anybody who has said, not interested. Not interested in diversity, I'm not doing anything. Um, I think that you have people who aren't necessarily doing what I think they should do. Sometimes I think it's because they don't have a sufficient pipeline. Sometimes I, they don't have access to communities. They, um, everybody, we've traditionally sourced from the same schools. You mm. have to branch out into different schools where you can look for talent. You have to have 
training programs or you have to have programs that make people feel work, welcome and included. Like, I don't think there's one thing they have to do. There are many things that they can work on. And so I just want to see that they're working on one of them and that they see that there's an importance to it. And that there are not a lot of firms who are just saying no. Yeah. Um, but we'll see. Mm-hmm. Right? I, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Uh, you also wrote that everyone examined their biases at Carnegie and actively worked on mitigating them. What's been a good exercise for doing this? So I think that what, what we did there was I asked everybody to self-identify what they thought were their biases and also at the same time identify what they thought we as a team could do to help mitigate those biases. So like if someone said, um, I really like star players. Like if somebody has a big reputation and it's a hot fund and every if every if every other LP wants to get into it, I feel like I because I love sourcing. I love feeling like I could get into a fund that everybody wants to get into. Okay, well that's a bias and you need somebody on the other side mm-hmm. who's saying I don't care about whether everybody else likes it. Why is it right for us? Yeah. And to stay disciplined around that. And so they were able to say to me, I really need you to um, ask a lot of questions around this so I don't get caught up in the hype. I remember one person says that I said at the time that they felt they were not sufficiently um, risk-taking. So they were really risk-averse. And so in meetings, I don't need the team to tell me what's wrong with the manager. That's all I do. I need them to tell me what's right with the manager so that I can gain more confidence and be, be able to take more risk. So it's like kind of understanding what they needed on the other side mm-hmm. in a meeting to make a good decision. Um, part of the reason why that worked when we did that exercise at Carnegie was because I had been there long enough and had hired everybody. And so I knew them well enough to know I had my own perception of what their biases were. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't here. I haven't been here long enough to be fully versed in that. I think that there are one clear bias here is track record. And so that means there's a bias against new funds. Yeah. And so trying to offset that by by saying very clearly that there is more social capital created by finding something new and interesting than there is with finding the well-established popular manager. And sort of, so there's try, trying to create a little bit of a cultural shift and also um, using tools that they respect checklists and rankings and things like that, but putting weights differently on different things. So to encourage people to step away from the thing that they're overly dependent on, um, really call into question anything that we have a lot of in the portfolio and say, we will not add any more of that thing. And so you have to step out and go into and look for new things. So I think it's just having some knowledge of where people are uh, likely to go to. And I think some of those biases are around that, that are not conscious, that systematically exclude different populations and saying, okay, I understand this proxy you use is in, in because it unearths this thing, but it excludes all these people. So if you're excluding these people, what proxy are you going to use to get to the thing that's important to you, but that doesn't exclude? Mm-hmm. So I think it's just right now calling into the room the things that sort of exclude people and trying to together come up with strategies that that prevent that from happening. It, it's a work in progress for all of us, but I think you it you do have to get your team 
to see it and start to deal with it before you can actually go out. And because if, you, if your team doesn't buy it and you start investing in funds that are sort of outside their comfort zone, as soon as they don't succeed, then it becomes that that thing is, is a problem as opposed to no, funds fail. Some of them will. It's, that's just the nature of it. So you've got to get people's heads in the right place so that they can allow everybody to do what they need to do to be successful or to fail because failure is valuable sometimes, yeah. right? So um, I'm just working on it. Sounds good. And now it's time for a question from a past CIO Conversations podcast guest. Since we had this conversation rescheduled, we have not one but two <laughs> questions from past CIO Conversations guests. The first one is from Scott Pittman. He's the CIO at Mount Sinai. He says the following, Kim is one of the most admired investors and respected leaders in our industry. While this is a rewarding industry to work in, its demands are never ending and pressure is constant. How do you find balance among these demands? What grounds you to face its pressures? So I love Scott. <laughs> he's an amazing investor and he's just a wonderful person. So I completely um, agree. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that this is for sure an industry that is incredibly demanding and, and to the point of that there's always there's always something to do. There's always something to worry about. I think that um, one of the things that has been helpful to me is being clear about the things I can control and the things I can't control and not attributing um, worth around the things that I just can't control, right? Mm -hmm. Like not, not that they don't have value, they have value, but I mean, I don't beat myself up around things that I, it's just outside my control. There's nothing I could have done that would have changed that outcome. So let me just focus on the things that I can control and I can have some influence over and make sure that they are things that add value. And I think the other thing is always to, um, to remember that what we do is not rocket science. Mm -hmm. What we do is not saving lives per se, right? Like there's a little bit of perspective around that. Um, and, I, and also I think for me, it's been to live, to try very hard to, to live in a way that I feel incredible gratitude, mm -hmm. right? I do think feeling grateful for it allows you to be less frustrated by when things are not so great. Because mm -hmm. every job has moments that are not bad. But I, I try to step out all the time and think, oh my God, what a blessing this job is. I get to speak to incredibly smart people all the time. I surround myself with people who have committed themselves to not-for-profits and committed themselves to supporting society and, and working in the part of this industry that really does good work. I am incredibly blessed. Right? Like, and if I can just keep that in the forefront of my mind on those bad days when like it just feels like the market is crazy and someone has called me and asked me for something amazing, I can give them grace. I can give myself grace and think about like in the big scheme of things, I am so grateful for this job and I'm so grateful that somebody who cares about this mission is doing this job. And I just have to keep that kind of centered into how I approach it. So there are bad days and then there are good days and, you know, net, net more good days than bad days. <laughs> I love that. Uh, our next question is from... Catherine Wyatt, who's the CIO at Loyola University of Chicago, and she asked the following, 
What is the most valuable lesson you have learned in your career so far? I think that's a great question. I um, I think I think the most valuable lesson that I've learned is the importance of communication. I think that's something that we all underestimate mm. in our personal lives, in our professional lives, um, because. And if someone, if you are not communicating effectively with someone and someone is not communicating effectively with you, it's not a good partnership, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I don't care how good a manager is, but if you don't have good communication and you don't understand each other, it's it can bite you eventually. And so um, I, at different levels, communication has been different. But for me right now, I think about how important it is for me to have really open and clear communication with the stakeholders that are important here. So I care a lot about communicating with my board, making sure they know what um, what we're doing, what our strategy is, that it won't always work, to give us the time it takes for us to execute on this strategy, um, to make sure I give them the information they need to feel supported and feel like they are engaged and have a, a sense of where the portfolio is going. I don't want them to be shocked at a cocktail party and have somebody ask them a question they cannot answer. Mm -hmm. So I owe them communication and they need to be clear to me about what their expectations are. Same thing with the team. You know, like I need to, I, I you know, giving feedback and especially negative feedback isn't pleasant for anybody. I say that all the time. The people that I give the most negative feedback to is my children because I care about them being better people. I have to care about my team well enough to have be good, clear communicators with them about expectations, about what we're trying to do to make sure we're on the same page as far as strategy, to make sure we're doing things that we need to do. I could go down the list of every party, every party I touch during the day, and it all comes down to being a, an effective communicator mm -hmm. with them and them being, and making sure that I understand them and can and understand how they're communicating with me with our managers super important to understand and be able to be a resource um, I don't think it's easy if you are not good at communication I yeah. think there's some people who are bad communicators but they work way harder than people <laughs> who are good communicators yeah thank you for that now moving on to more personal questions your personal story is truly inspiring. You grew up in the housing projects in the Bronx. You attended Wharton and Harvard Business School, and you've led top institutions. You also broke a barrier out of the top 100 endowments. You're the first black woman to lead an endowment, and not just any endowment, one of the largest Ivy League university endowments. I would love to just hear a little bit more about what challenges you overcame what it was like growing up in the housing projects, how you left there to be where you are now, and what that journey was like, and what advice you would have for others. So I never, um, I never downplay the role that luck plays in a life. Mm -hmm. Right? I think um, I look back on my life, and there are so many moments where I think, oh my God, the luck that went into that. So I can sit here and I can tell you that it was critical that I had a strong family who cared a lot about education. Absolutely critical. Yeah. Um, I can say that it was critical that I got the opportunity, um, that I was a kid who liked school, right? Mm -hmm. Like who 
who liked school and cared about school and yeah. worked and was willing to work at school because it because it was important to me. Um, that I did have um, the opportunity to go to amazing schools, public schools, despite the fact that of where I was living. That I just that even though. I, you know, at first I lived in a housing project in Harlem and then in the Bronx, but they were all strong communities, hmm. right, in many respects. Very different 50 years ago than they are now, but mm-hmm. they were really, there was a sense of community where people look out for each other's kids and hmm. tried to keep them um, in, in sort of on the right path. But yeah. I had teachers who decided that they wanted to invest in me, who wanted to find creative ways to make sure that I could be what I could be, right? And like a lot of people don't get that. I had a, I, I remember getting in trouble in school, probably third grade, I think it was third grade, maybe it was fourth grade, something like that, really getting in trouble. And the punishment for me was that I had to go to the, I had to write a book report each week, sit down with a, a teacher and go over that book report. Yeah, there's a lot of people punish kids and just say sit in a room. But yeah. this teacher came up with this creative way. I read so many books. I learned. I loved reading. I became a better writer. Yeah. Um, I had a lot of attention paid to me by this person um, who absolutely made a huge difference in my life, which ended up putting me in an accelerated middle school that put me at Bronx Science and all these all these teachers along the way who was like, oh, this kid is a nice kid and she's smart and I'm going to find creative ways to keep her engaged. A lot of people don't get that. Yeah. It's not that they're not smart. It's not that they don't have a good family. They don't have people who are keeping them right. in on the straight and narrow. So I did. Um, and, you know, I am I never lose sight. I say this all the time. I'm my mom is black. My father is Chinese. We lived in a black and Hispanic community always. But we were the, you know, like we were the odd kids, right? Like we had a, you know, the big joke is that my brother got into a fight when he was really little because somebody said we had mixed math parents. So like we were the, like people who knew who we were because yeah. it was a really odd thing to have at the time. And I think that it was the same way in schools. And so as much as I had to deal with the biases and the prejudice of being black, there's a ton of biases and prejudices of being Asian that helped, right? And yeah. so those two things balanced out and huh. created this environment where I did have people who, no one didn't expect me to be good in math. You're Chinese, of course you're going to be good in math. That's bias, right? That's, yeah. that's prejudice, mm-hmm. but it helped, right? right. Like, so I, I don't lose sight of that. Okay. I don't lose sight of how important that is. Um, I, I think there are a million times when I did not appreciate the magnitude of the thing that I was about to do. And if I had, I might not have done it because I think I got in my own way sometimes, which a lot of women do, a lot of people of color do, that they second guess whether or not they are prepared for a role or whether this seat is for them. Um, and it can be very daunting when it's very clear that you are not welcome in a space to put yourself in a space. But there are a lot of times I didn't know that that's what I was doing. Hmm. When I went to get the Ford Foundation job, when I went to apply for the Ford Foundation job, I thought it was an informational interview. I was just going to speak to my friend's mom, who was going to tell me some ideas 
And then we hit it off. And before I knew it, I was interviewing for this job that I did not know I was interviewing for. If I thought I was going to interview, I would have been like, I'm not qualified for that that job. I'm not going to waste your mother's time. Like, I'm not going to go do that. But that's not, that's not what it was. You know, quite honestly, um, while I I knew that Columbia was an amazing place and it was a big place, I didn't understand the magnitude of this decision either. It was... It came to me in the middle of a pandemic at a crazy time. I don't know that I was assessing all of what it would mean to come and lead this organization. So I think I, there's a lot of time that I think the blinders kept me from being too scared to do something. Um, and I think that helped. And so I think, you know, my advice I would give to young people is to just to be brave, be braver than I was. I don't think I was as brave as I pretend to be sometimes, but I think sometimes you have to be comfortable with failure. Like, what's the worst that can happen? You don't get the job. What's the worst that can happen? You, you're not great at this thing. I think that feels so overwhelming sometimes. And I, I think it's because we haven't been given the same permission to not be successful. And so the weight of that is daunting. Um, and it also feels like we carry the weight of our race of our sex mm. of our or gender of our um of all of the of of all of that with us and so it feels like it's such an amazing responsibility that makes people not want to take a chance but until we start doing it then it's always going to be that like we have to we have to be braver and i like i said i i say this having not always been my most brave self but i do think that that's my advice to people is that um, be focused on the things you can control, which is to be as good as you can, to learn as much as you can, to be intellectually curious, to be hardworking, all those things you can control, and then just take leaps. Just got to leap sometimes. Yeah. So. Is there any particular advice you would give women of color who are maybe in mid-level roles, so they're not junior but maybe they aspire to become CIO of a top Ivy League or break some other barrier. And you often see that place is where they fall off. Yeah, I think it's um, pick good partners, right? Like I think um, create a support system. Like I, part of my success is never having worried about my kids but my kids being so important. Like I kept balance, I kept perspective, I kept, I had joy in my life because of my children. So I needed my children to be successful, but I never worried about my children because I had a support system that included my husband, that included my mom and my dad, that included neighbors and friends who would step in and be supportive. Um, So I, I personally needed to have children to feel grounded but I also had a network that made it possible so that every time I was presented with a new opportunity, a new challenge, I could take it. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I took, I moved from Publix to Privates at the Ford Foundation when I was pregnant with my oldest daughter. I moved to Carnegie Corporation from, from Ford Foundation when my youngest daughter was three months old. Mm-hmm. Like they were, t- they were times when people would have said, this is not a good time in your life. I. I took this job at the worst time in my life because I had a network and I had a support system that allowed me to do it. Yeah. So I think you have to spend as much time 
building out the infrastructure that you need to be able to take chances as you can. And I think um, I think that's hard. Yeah. But it's important. And it doesn't have to be family. Sometimes it's friends. It does, sometimes people pay somebody. I, it, but you be conscious of it. Know that that is something that you will not be successful unless you figure it out. You mentioned that you took this job at the worst time of your life. Your husband passed away three months before you took this job. And what got you through this heartbreaking life experience? What advice or other advice would you give others on how to manage the difficulties, challenges of life with a demanding career? Yeah, my, my girls got me through that. You know, there's, there is a little bit of, um, again, maybe because I'm a Virgo, like, you know, and all that goes along with that. But there is a little bit about control and being kind of a control freak. And I did really, it was kind of like, no, 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 you keep going because they need to see that. They need to model that. I need to model that for them. Um, and I need, I'm a mother, like that their, their safety, their health, their mental health is, was important to me and I needed to do what I had to do. So that was part of getting through it was just concentrating on what they needed. Part of it was, which I think is if I, when I look back on is maybe the thing that I did wrong in that period of time is that I started very early saying to them, we are going to live and sit in gratitude. I know this feels really painful, but there's some people who never have a good father, who never have a good husband. We had, you know, you had 15 years, my little one had 13 years, my older one had um, 19 years. You each have had 20 years. She, you each have had something that some people never get. Let's start out by being grateful for that, mm -hmm. right? So I think that, um, there was a part of me that that um, felt like that would keep them um, not becoming depressed or not wallowing in it. But sometimes, but I think sometimes you just need to be depressed, yeah. and sometimes you just need to be angry. Like you just need to be mad about the situation. And I wish I had given them a little bit more freedom to just be angry for a while. But that said, we are a family that feels very much like we are blessed, and mm -hmm. I think it is we never lose sight of that. And so I think that's part of it. I think part of it was having this new job and having something to focus on, to feel good about. Also to use up the time and space because I didn't have the time to think about it. I actually say now that this is the time that I start to think about, okay, so what is my life going to be like now? Because for two years, I was so focused on my kids and job. And the fact that we were in a pandemic, I didn't have time to think about mm. like the fact that my world was very different. Um, but you know, you, the, all of the years that I invested in the relationship when my kids paid off in that moment, when we could talk to each other and we could be a support system for each other, you know, amazing friends would come by and just sit in my backyard because we were in the pandemic. They couldn't come in and bring food or just come by and like be a support. Like it was the infrastructure like I said, it goes back to building that infrastructure that allows you to have stable ground when things are rocky. And so, um, yeah, it was, it was miserable. Yeah. But it also was a real time for us to be together. Thankfully, the, we were in the pandemic, so we were all home together, mm. just the three of us in the house. And, you know, with people 
stopping in. My parents were amazing. My brother was amazing. So many friends um, really stepped in. There's been amazing friends of ours who have taken on the role of surrogate fathers for my children and done all the handyman stuff in the house for me. I I make emergency phone calls to neighbors and friends and be like, this thing is broken. I don't know how to fix it. And they, you know, people kind of come in and, you know, but those were relationships we invested in over time that made it possible. So it was hard, but you know, we're here. Thank you so much for sharing that. You're amazing. (laughs) Thank you. Now on to less heavy topic areas. What's your favorite story or moment of experiencing cultural diversity? Oh man, I have so many. Like I have gone to so many countries. I I had this um, this we had to do this thing. For one of my one of my stepson, my husband had an older son, and I were talking about how many countries we had visited, and I'm I think I'm up to like thirty seven countries or something like that. It was really important to me that every time we went, um, we went on vacation as a family, one international trip, one domestic trip. And I remember one of my favorite cultural moments was we were in Brazil and my oldest daughter was young. She was like maybe two or three years old. And we went to Bahia and we were like in the streets and these were dancing. The people were dancing, we were watching it. And this little kid came up to her, did not speak English. She didn't speak Portuguese, obviously. But they just started playing together and they just started dancing and they were like, he was showing her how to do like something. And I thought, oh my God, this is like, it just was so wonderful. Mm -hmm. Like this little kid that just like, they couldn't even speak to each other, but they could, like he sort of took an interest in her and like was trying to show her stuff and she was sort of open to seeing it. And it was, so it was really lovely. Every time we go to another country, we take a cooking class. We love food. One of the best things is um, the ability to, to, um, to learn about the food. I think food is sort of the thing that binds people. So um, also super important. What is a book you would recommend to our listeners? How to Raise an Adult is a book that I love and um, How to Make Decisions, two books that I really love. Um, and and uh, I don't know, there's, I, just, I, I love reading. Um, the Personal Librarian is a book I just finished reading. I thought it was super interesting. It was about J.P. Morgan's um, Personal Librarian. Um, I, I read all the time, so I have a ton of them. But I, every parent, I would recommend to read How to Raise an Adult and How to Make Decisions. I think it's about how you make good decisions. And I think in this job, we need to learn how to make good decisions. What's your best personal money advice? To not spend more than you earn. <laughs> just try to stay out of debt if you can. If you could live anywhere else in the world for one year other than our beloved New York City, where would it be and why? I would live someplace slower and calmer. Um, I think that, um, but I like cities. So I don't know that I would completely leave a city. I spent, I don't really know the answer to that. There's no, I can't think of one place. I've been so many places and I love them all. My favorite place to visit was South Africa, but it's not calm, but it's beautiful and the food is delicious. I loved Greece. I don't know. I probably, if if I'm going to live someplace a year, I want them to speak English because unfortunately I don't have good language skills. So maybe South Africa. Okay. Sounds good. 
Well, thank you, Kim, so much for your time. You are a wealth of knowledge oh, and insight. I really love this conversation. Thank you for your time. Absolutely. And I look forward to you hopefully joining Accelerate Investors at a future Thank summit. you. I'd thank love you. to. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you for listening to part two of my conversation with Kim Liu. And don't forget to join us on January 19th in Austin, Texas for the Accelerate Investor Southwest Investor Insight Summit. I'm Betty Salonique, founder and CEO of Accelerate Investors, and you've been listening to CIO Conversations. You can follow Accelerate Investors on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Thank you for listening.